And if we don't have those services support available for young people in those circumstances, many of them will end up in the system. All that talk to my gang pulled up, but we pull up and they all did. Alright, yo, it's your boy King Dave here. This is the Fallon Show. Hope all is uh, going well out there. Um, how about you introduce um, yourself, brother, and what you do for a living? Yeah, thanks, brother. Um, my name's uh, Stefan. I'm a, an associate professor uh, of forensic psychology. Um, I'm based at Swinburne University in Melbourne. Um, and so for, forensic psychology, it's the intersection of mental health and the criminal justice system. And my, my work, my research has looked at a number of things. So pathways into the youth justice system. What are some of the main factors and how that differs for different cultural groups? Um, I also look at how you know, services can work more effectively with young people. Um, what kind of support should they be offering? I also work as well and advise for a number of uh, not-for-profit organisations out in Melbourne, out in the southeast and some in the west that work with young, culturally linguistically, culturally linguistically diverse young people who have been justice involved. So, yeah, that's me at the moment. Far out. Solid work, brother. Solid work that you're doing there. Um, much love, man, for jumping on. So, you know, on this show, I get a whole... Um, variety of people uh, on you know I try to get give people you know a wider perspective of you know the system as a whole not just from convicts not just from just a whole range of people you know what I mean so that we can really get an idea of what's going on uh, especially over there in Melbourne to start off so how did you even get involved in in, in all of this brother? Yeah bro I've, um, I've been um, I've been at university or working at a university for more than a decade now um, it was a pretty pretty long journey actually like and probably a bit of an accident and, and quite a bit of luck as well so I wasn't um someone who, who grew up thinking about being a professor as a kid I suppose a lot of kids don't sort of have that sort of front and center anyway or that particular job and it wasn't sort of on the table even as a young adult it wasn't something that was in the realm of possibility for me so you know when I grew up I wanted to be a you know musician or a sports person and, that, and I was fixated on those two options for a long time you know, well into my mid-20s, you know, you know, I played you know, a lot of basketball and I, I got into sort of powerlifting and strongman events and then into the fighting sports, you know, did quite a lot of boxing and MMA, wrestling and so on. And so I was, I was much more invested in those pursuits, you know, well, you know, well into my sort of mid to late 20s even. And also, I actually also was a bit of a musician as well, so I could play a few instruments and, um, you know, composed a bit of music and so on. I also had a I had a bit of a brief stint uh, as a rapper in the late 90s. It's performing at yeah. yeah, yeah. Nice, performing nice. In <laughs> out in Ringwood, brother. Yeah. But I, I didn't I actually didn't really get my shit together until my late 20s, bro. So from you know 18 to 27, I was um, you know, pretty idle. I had an attempt at university when I was 18. Um, only lasted a couple of months and then I then I dropped out of that. I wasn't quite ready for that adjustment. I wasn't sort of in the right headspace. I was, I was living out in the southeast. I was based in Clayton. And a lot of that time I was doing sort of part-time, you know, jobs, a lot of factory work out in sort of Dandenong, Hampton Park area. Um, and then I started to move into security and by mid-20s, you know, my regular my regular gig was just sort of bouncing in nightclubs around Melbourne. So, um, and then sort of over time, things sort of unraveled a bit and got into a bit of a slump and suddenly, you know, late 20s, I hadn't held down a full-time job and just doing bits and pieces. And a career wasn't really looking likely either. So I was getting a bit frustrated with life and um, started to become a bit disconnected and things sort of went downhill a little bit from there. But despite despite that sort of dis 
I'd say disappointing decade. I did manage to stay connected to education um, for some of that period. And in doing so, that gave me a lifeline um, back in my, you know, you know, in my later 20s. So I went back to uni. Um, and so I knocked off the, a bachelor's degree over time, took a while, but I, I majored in criminology. Now, at the time, I wasn't that necessarily sort of passionate about the subject matter, but it was, it was interesting enough and I was curious. Um, and when I finished that degree, I started to look for jobs in the industry, um, but there wasn't a lot on offer at the time. Um, so then I enrolled in a master's and that was a master's of communication. So basically this focused on how do I, how to learn, and, sorry, how to write and produce media content. So it was effectively a journalism degree. To cut a long story short, um, I was, you know, 27, I had two degrees um, and I wasn't sort of under my belt, but I wasn't working and I hadn't been able to hold down a full-time job. You know, eventually in 2009, I was 28, I got a bit of a lifeline. So I'd, I'd moved back home with my folks because I, I wasn't able to afford rent and I had a bit of a failed marriage at that point. So I was living back at home and I'd stopped security as well. So I wasn't working and I, I didn't have an income. So I was sort of on the dole and hibernating at my, my parents' house. And then, then the old man came into my room one day with a newspaper job opportunity that he'd circled and he'd often do that. And I'd often ignore it, but he'd, he'd bring it in and he came and said, look, I think you should apply for this. It's right up your alley. So I had a look. It was Monash Uni. They were offering a PhD to study or to conduct research on uh, young people from multicultural backgrounds who were in custody in Victoria. And it came with a scholarship, three-year scholarship. So I looked at that and I had two emotions. The first one was, that's perfect. That's interesting. I, I'd actually love to do that. Um, but the other thought was, well, you're not getting that. You know, why, why would they hire you? You know, you're a bit of a bum. You know, you know why, why would you bother? I got, I got around to calling them. Um, and, and to my surprise, they just said, look, and I told them I hadn't been very active. And they said, look, come in for an interview. We'll see what happens. And then I thought, I, you know, shit, I've got to prepare for this. You know, I, I got overwhelmed pretty quickly because I'd, I'd never had a CV or a resume. I didn't have any referees, like professional referees, and I, I didn't own any professional clothes. I had, um, had one suit from about two years ago that my dad bought for a court appearance. <laughs> but that, that suit was way too big. Yeah, it was, man. I, I was doing, you know, sort of, powerlifting and that when I bought that and then I lost a lot of weight doing you know um MMA wrestling so didn't didn't fit so I ended up going to the interview in my my old bouncer outfit just the black jeans and the black t-shirt and I had long hair at the time I had a big plait going down the back um and I had a fair few tats which quite a few I've removed now but anyway I turned up I looked a bit of a mess and the interview was a bit unremarkable and I didn't have much to say and at the end I was 100% certain that I wasn't getting it and so forgot about it but then a month later, I, I got a call from the person that convened the interview and I thought they were just calling me to tell me I didn't get it. But um, I remember the call, you know, still vividly and I was, they just said they were willing to take a chance on me. And so that's, that's when it all changed for me. So, um, and the rest is history. And that was a bit of a ramble, bro. But that's, I've been in academia ever since. It's been more than a decade. I've got to travel around the world and I'm, I'm enjoying it still. Far out, man. That's a cool story, though, brother, coming from, I mean, bouncing and security and, um, you know, rapping, <laughs> you know, and, um, you know, I'm sure yeah. growing up out in the eastern suburbs would have been tough as well as, you know, a brown man, black man, you know, would have been, um, that would have had the challenges um, in itself. But I mean, you've, you you come, um, man, you came a long way, actually, you know, it shows people it's never, never too late to start studying, you know, never too late to um, go to uni and, and, and try that you know academic route so what what did that that job entail brother so was that going down to parkville there was it and um into youth justice 
Yep. Yeah, that that's right. So um, a lot of the, at least for that first doctoral project, so I, the, the project needed someone to go in and conduct interviews with every single young person in there, just so they could tell their life story, you know, some of the challenges they've had. Um you know, you know, what was their initial contact with the justice system like and what impact did that have on their lives and further entanglement in the system? So interesting, interesting project went for about three years um, and, and basically got interviewed most kids that were probably in Parkville and Marm through that, those particular years. And so I'd spend a lot of time in there, you know, hanging out on the units, um, doing those interviews. So that, that was, a, I, I enjoyed that because um, a lot of ac- academic work, you're sitting behind a computer, man, like you Running, running, crunching, and you know, data, doing statistical analyses, you get quite disconnected from what's happening on the ground. And so that I like to pride myself as an academic who goes out in the community. Oh wow, again, man, that's a long way from bouncing and um, MMA fighting, brother. <laughs> you know, going to like teaching <laughs> yeah. students and all of that. I mean, uh, going back to your time at Youth Justice, brother, having to um, interview clients there, you know, which is what they call, you know, I'm guess, you know, inmates, so clients like um. What were some, if you can speak on it, what were some sort of common threads there, brother, um, like in their stories and um, what had led them to the to being in um, youth justice? And because it's obviously before you go to youth justice for a kid, there's a long story usually of why they've ended up there. Um, it really doesn't just happen, you know, out of nowhere, you know, um, which but that does happen. It can happen out of nowhere sometimes, but usually there is a, quite a lead up. So what were some common threads, brother, in the stories of, um, you know, clients and youth justice? Yeah, bro. Um, and I, and I'd, be, I'd be keen, too, to get, get your thoughts on this as well. So basically, you know, um, the profiles of kids that justice involve, regardless of their cultural background, are kind of similar in, in many ways you just sort of just alluded to. So you get, you get a sense of social marginalisation, um, Sort of a sense of social rejection from mainstream society. Um, it's financial disadvantage. So a lot of a lot of kids coming from you know low income backgrounds. That's a big one, and also a bit of family breakdown in there as well. Um, a lot of tension in the house. Not not everyone, of course, but like that came out quite a lot. Tension in the house, a bit of conflict, some violence in the family environment or in and around it, and also detachment from school was pretty common, um, and and sort of fairly early on too. Sort of you know started to become disconnected from school. 13, 14. Um, and, and once once they become disconnected and there's not, not a lot of supports in the school system, um, th- then disconnection from that institution can sort of uh, lead to a whole range of other things. I'll get to that in a moment. But then substance use was something that kind of came up a lot. Also mental health concerns to some extent, but also peer group as well. Like um, peer group was often influential in decision-making um, and behavioral dynamics um, um, for the young people. So, yeah, and these these factors are all pretty obvious to most people. Wouldn't be news to most, to most people. But I was looking also at differences between cultural groups as well. What we identified that called youth, so the culturally linguistically diverse youth who were locked up, they tended to have just on average, their uh, parents were less likely to be involved in the system than say Anglo Australians who had been in the system, or Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders who had been in the system, who were more likely to have family members. That have been locked up or had some justice involvement. So we didn't see that as much with the culturally linguistically diverse population. Second thing we saw, and again, this is this is just um, I'm generalizing here, there are exceptions, of course, and we've seen trends change a little bit in recent years, but we saw evidence of later onset 
engagement in the criminal justice system. So with that culturally linguistically diverse population starting to get involved slightly later, maybe 14, 15, possibly later. Whereas again, some of the Anglo kids who have been justice involved, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander kids who have been justice involved, their, their entanglement in the system was slightly earlier, sort of 10, 11, right? So we saw a slight delayed onset. Still not quite sure why that is. We did find that the called group tended to have slightly more pro-social influences in their life and, and parents that were less likely to be involved in the justice system. There might have been a slight protective buffer just for some of those years. We found a lot of the called kids were still going to church um, we're still involved in sports or still playing music or something along those lines, even as they were getting locked up. And in the peer group as well, we also found that, and again, this is common for most kids who are just involved, the peer group is quite influential, but we found for the core group, it was, on, it was at a magnitude higher. So, you know, the, the social environment with, with, with the, the group um, would often dictate, you know, certain types of behaviour and, and so on. We found that was much stronger um, for called young people because when they were getting, when they were um, embarking on that pathway, a lot of the offending was in, in at a group level, right, as opposed to at an individual level. So, the the peer group influence was quite strong. But I'd say, by and large, the profiles are pretty similar. We just found these sort of minor nuances. If you're in in some of those tough social circumstances, you know, family breakdown, conflict, financial struggles, unstable housing, um, not a lot of monitoring, guidance, or support. Not a lot of assistance with schooling or trying to stay in school and not a, not a lot of role models around. It's not surprising that some of the kids will start reacting to that condition. And once you start to deviate a bit from, you know, school and family and you're feeling a bit socially rejected at that point, obviously you're going to start looking for belonging and meaning and purpose elsewhere. And it's, it's a bit of a cliche, but when you get a lot of young disconnected men and they're not involved in any positive activities, you're going to see some offending, but it'll be offending for social connection offending for belonging, um, and then offending becomes the way in which you start to get some status among your mates. It's how you get excitement. It's how you get respect. It's how you get some money. It's also how you prove yourself. You get a bit of clout, get a bit of notoriety, um, and you know you get a bit of a buzz from that, right? Because there's always a bit of a, I remember, there's always a bit of a thrill when you're planning something, and, and especially if you're getting away with it too. You get a real rush, um, and, and for a crew or whatever, a group, it's a, it's a real bonding exercise. And I also just want to say, bro, I think the social media internet culture is probably amplifying some of that now because I didn't see that as much with the group back in Parkville 210, 213, but I'm seeing it a lot now. Um, a lot of kids are spending time on social media and they're getting fed a kind of sort of fantasy lifestyle um, and you start to want certain things and, and you attach that to your own self-worth. Uh, and I think a lot of young people now are sort of performing what I'd call their notoriety online in order to get some validation from their peers. But you know, like with your time in um, Youth Justice, was it tough, bro, working working there and sort of um, hearing all these different stories and um, feeling like, you know, sort of seeing some of these kids, like, man, these kids are going to end up in prison and they're most likely going to end up spending a large majority of their adult lives in prison, you know? like So was that sort of tough, you know, sort of being able to see that, you know? and yeah. Yeah, um, th that's right. That's right. It was tough, um, and I should I should say back then, it was a more accessible population. So so the facility is different now. It's a big yeah, so it's completely changed now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It has, man. It's um, it's, it's pro probably mismanaged. Is probably what, what I call it. Population's probably more more than it was 
10, 10 years ago. So you can imagine how many people are just stacked on remand right now. Some, oh, uh, right. It's, it's like, but is that from the is that from more offending, or is that just from the the government cracking down more, or like the police cracking down on, you know, what offences wouldn't have landed them inside there before are uh, now landing them inside there nowadays? Because that was what was happening with the adult prison system when it was exploding. It wasn't more that people were offending more; it's just that mm. the, the the police and that were just cracking down on things that normally wouldn't have landed someone inside. Yeah, hundred percent, bro. Um, that, that's right. And there's still, we're, we're still sort of looking into that phenomenon to find out what happened. But I think you're right in the adult prison because they tightened up what you were referring to, the bail laws, after a sort of a political knee-jerk reaction to a serious crime in the community. And I think um, same thing has probably happened at Parkville. Um, the bail laws were changed, I think, around 2013 to be a lot tighter. Um, and so... You know, we've seen sort of a gradual increase in the number of kids in remand since that bail legislative change. And it was, as you said, man, it was a little sad because there were, there were I would have thought, um, a large minority of kids there who I, I could see were, were on a trajectory into the, into the adult system. But they also had sort of goals and aspirations that I think they wanted to fulfil, but just yeah, didn't, didn't, have, didn't have the assistance, yeah, or support or know how to do it. Yeah. And they kind, yeah. kind of resigned themselves to a particular lifestyle just out of sort of a feeling of hopelessness. If they had the right assistance and the right guidance and some, you know, positive mentors, they could have fulfilled that, you know, aspiration. And sadly, some of them didn't get that support at all. And that's one of the issues sort of post-custody, you know, being, you know, being released without much of a plan and being sent back to the social conditions that sort of led you in there in the first place. Um, and, and then you, and there's a bit of a sort of a, a cycle. Um, so, yeah, I, I think for me that was probably the most disturbing part of it, you know, seeing a quite large number of kids, man, who I thought could quite easily turn their cells around if they had the right, right supports, but the right supports were just not there. And I think one of the issues I've, I've always had is that a lot of the funding in YJ goes to the point in, it goes to services around custody or custody and services in and around custody. Very little by comparison goes into the community um, in terms of early intervention, in terms of reintegration back into the community and having sort of intensive supports um, using a strengths-based approach. Um, there's, there's very little um, sort of funding going into that side of things. And I think that's unfortunate. And yeah, you would have learned a lot, um, obviously, being there. I mean, yeah, like you said, you know, that is the, the thing that sucks because a large majority well, a very large majority, you know, bravado aside, that yep. do want to do other things than go to jail. I mean, that's the same even in the adult population. You know, there are so many guys that just do want to work and they do want to do this and that, but it's just they get out and then you just you get lost, you know, and it's just like, um, yeah, you just get lost. There's not many services and things to sort of reintegrate and, and all of that. And yeah, you just sort of get lost and then they end up, you know, going back to what they what they know, you know, even though they don't want to go back to prison or, or juvie, you know, it's just that's just what ends up happening. You know, so um well look, so so moving on here. Um so currently, you know, you are a professor at, at Swinburne. Um you're doing a lot still, you know, in this in this space, you know. Um so I mean even with um some of these um organizations that you're working with currently. So what's that like, brother being out there on the forefront of um you know, so you said Australia, uh, African-Australian type organisations, was it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I'm 
involved one organization quite a lot called Afri Care out in Dainong. Yep. Um, and that, that initially was set up to um, provide sort of support for humanitarian arrivals, sort of resettlement support. Um, but then it, then it sort of evolved into, you know, providing services for young African Australians from that southeast who are at risk or kids that have um, come through the system uh, or kids who are all supporting them, you know, their court appearances and so on. And so it started by um, through the creation of a sort of a basketball-centred approach. So they had this team called the Black Rhinos, which has got a bit of attention, you know, back in Melbourne. Um, and the Black Rhinos is a, you know, it's, it's a sort of a, it's a basketball team uh, where they look and training at Dandenong High every week. And the kids, the ki- you know, any kids can be involved if they want to, but it's, it's sort of a accessible, non-judgmental service. You know, there's, you know, we don't burden kids with sort of paperwork and um, it's, it's not based on coercion, you know, or compliance, you know, we're, we're sort of hands off. Um, and so the kids can come and play basketball, but then we have these kind of satellite services around the court. So if they need legal assistance, there'll be a lawyer there. If they need some counselling, um, there'll be a counsellor there around the court as well. Um, and kids, if they want, they can go off and sort of see uh, or seek assistance um, from those professionals. Um, there's also, you know, peer, peer-to-peer support. So we have, um, you know, some, some older kids there who have been through the system and are now, you know, have desisted entirely. And so they're there for support as well. And the CEO, um, uh, Selva Luca, um, you know, has a mental health background, practitioner, and so she runs the whole thing. So it's been quite successful. You know, Black Rhinos is, you know, I've found to be a good sort of rehabilitative initiative. Um, it's had a lot of success. Um, but I think partly because it's, it's an intimate service, but it's a non-judgmental one, and we allow kids to kind of connect with the service at their own pace. Again, there's no compliance. There's no, you know, if you don't turn up, once or twice, well, then you're out, we'll dispense with you. We understand, you know, things take time. Um, and it's all about building trust and rapport. I think that's that's the key point, um, particularly with, you know, young people who have been just involved. They've been failed a lot um, by, you know, very various sort of institutions. So they're, um, you know, they're understandably sort of mistrustful. So I, I've always thought that's the number one thing. You've got to build the trust and rapport and you've got to earn that as the service provider. Um, and, and once you've once you've sort of earned that, then you can sort of, um, you know, you, you can sort of minimise that power imbalance and sort of come to, come to the youth sort of where they're at. And I think um, I want to see more of these sort of culture-based community organisations sort of being funded to assist some of the young people in the area. So I think um, I think with the system at the moment, is I think it's very much based on what I'd call a deficit model. So there's a very strong focus on what I'd call just harm prevention. There's a very strong focus on risk. You know, someone's a risk to the community. Um, there's a very strong focus on community safety and community safety is important, of course. But I think we're, we're skewed. We have a skewed focus on the risk. Um, and the thing is when you're, you're focused too much on risk, community protection and nothing else, then inevitably the solutions are going to be behavioural management, containment, coercion, compliance, incapacitation, Right. And the deficit model, I think, always ends up in further deficits. So I always think, you know, and it's, it's much easier for correctional organisations to focus on behavioural management and containment because that's what they do best. That's sort of what they do. The harder work is transitioning to a strength-based model, right? And I can, I can sort of go through what, I, what, what, what that is. 
but effectively it is the opposite of a deficit model. And it really focuses on the person's aspirations and goals and talents um, and putting them on a sort of pro-social trajectory as opposed to just focusing on risk, right? So that's what I think a lot of the culture-based community organisations do very well. They're much more focused on human development, personal development, as opposed to containing risk. Um, but yeah, I think I think working with those community organisations, man, has been um, very rewarding. Um, and you know, a lot of the kids who come through there, again, it's it's a phase in their life, and a lot of them desist when they get provided with those opportunities. Mm. Um, so yeah, I'd like to see more of that, more of those organisations funded. Yeah, are there many um, funded there in Melbourne, brother? Um, yeah, yes and no. So they. Um, most of them rely purely on sort of government funding. There's a little bit of philanthropic funding around, but most of them rely purely on that. But a lot of them tend to be under-resourced. Mm-hmm. Um, and when there's sort of government funding available, um, you know, a lot of them will, will apply and they'll be in competition with each other. And sometimes what will happen is the government will, will, will give them a small amount of money each, which is just not enough to function. Um, what would probably be better is if a lot of them collaborated together and worked together as a consortium. Um, but yeah, they, they generally struggle, but you know, a lot of them are new organizations. They've only been around four or five years. There's a couple of really good ones in the Pacifica space as well. Um, you know, out, out in the West. All right. Well, brother Stefan, man, I mean, um, we're coming to the end now, brother. I mean, um, is there sort of anything else that you wanted to touch on brother and share? Um, I, I think, I think the, what I would say is where we need to go when we're working with young people, um, I think we need to sort of tra- change our sort of mindset. Um, at least I'm, t- I'm talking from a service provider perspective. You know, I think I, I mentioned before about having more of a strengths-based model in, you know, in corrections or in the community. Um, you know, so I think a lot of kids, you know, they, they stop offending for various reasons, right? They've either had enough they realise it's not fun anymore. They realise that they're wasting their lives or they've had a fallout, they've had a wake-up call. You know, they've they've engaged, you know, they found a bit of purpose and meaning in, or have hooked up with a pro-social partner. There's a whole lot of reasons. But not, not, everyone, gets, not everyone gets there and um, it can take a while. But um, I think what services need to do, they need to think about reconnecting young people, really invested in connecting young people back to their communities, focusing on the aspirational and the educational needs. But you have to incentivize the young person I think a lot of kids who are disaffected, who are justice involved, they are having some of their life needs met, you know, through offending, you know, which I mentioned before. They're getting sort of friendship, purpose, meaning, getting a pseudo family out of it, getting some respect, getting some thrills. So if those services want to deviate kids from those lifestyles, they have to provide them or facilitate some of those pro-social opportunities and experiences, which replace the needs that they have that have been fulfilled through offending. Right. They can't just say, well, you know, stop all of that. It's bad for you. I've got to say, well, I'm going to provide a meaningful alternative. Um, and I think, you know, um, this is where that the aspirational programming that I mentioned before is important. And having a strong focus on strengths and the talents of the young person, spending time identifying what they're good at, what do they want to do, and then help and support them pursue that activity. What I've seen in my life, that, that moving away from crime is very much the result often of relationships that are formed that are not solely about trying to control someone's behavior. And so this, this is where that um, sort of trust um, comes in. But I'll just, I'll just finish bro by saying that, you know, um, you know, I, I want to compliment you on this show, brother. I mean, 
the show is such an important service to the community. As I, you know, I think it provides a voice for people um, who are not often heard or ignored, and allows allows those stories to be, you know, told in an unfiltered way and conveyed, shared in a non-judgmental environment. And these conversations that you're having, um, I think, are probably pretty therapeutic for, for the guests. Um, I don't know, if, possibly if they're therapeutic for you, but possibly, but also for a lot of people watching. And so you're, I think this show, you're actually going to change a lot of lives through this show um, than most people working in corrections will ever be able to do. And also most people studying this area will ever be able to do. So keep it up, brother, and I'm excited to see the next level. Man, thank you, Vala. I really appreciate the kind words, man. Um, and that's the goal, man. You know, we're just um, I just I just feel like we all got a part to play in all of this. You know, I mean, that's of getting all these people on here, getting you on here, because we've all got a part to play in this race, man. We've all got the same goal. And like you said, you know, with um, these different organizations, like we really just needed to try and come together more and you know, not just these services, but also people, inmates, you know what I mean? People that have lived that, bringing us all together and being able to get a, a wide um, spectrum of what's going on, you know, and, and, the, and the best ways to, to go about things. I mean, I really appreciate you jumping on as well, man, because you've actually given me a lot to think on, man. You know, here in New Zealand, um, you know, I am um, trying to do a lot in the space with, well, outside of this, you know, working with the youth, working with at-risk youth, um, even adult offenders, you know, so you've given me a lot to, to ponder on now, you know, a lot of um, good tips to sort of, um, yeah, to sort of um, with my own journey in, in doing all of this. So um, again, man, I, I appreciate you jumping on, brother. Um, thank you for the kind words as well, my man. And um, man, if there's nothing else you'd like to say, brother, we'll, we'll talk soon. Yeah, thanks, brother. Likewise, thanks for having me on the show and all the best, bro.